0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to A Book Nerd and the Bible. My name is Sam, and each week I compare some of my all-time favorite books to biblical stories to see what we can learn about both. In our show's inaugural season, we are focusing on Jesus before he starts his ministry and the origin stories of some of our favorite characters. Today we will be starting a new series of three shows focused on female characters in literature. I am really excited about this series, and I'll be honest, I'm also trying to push myself to read more female authors and perspectives. I recently read a Guardian article, which I will mention in full during the sources section of this podcast, by the way, that stated of the 10 best-selling female authors of all time, only 19% of their readership is men. That is an abysmal and sad statistic, so I am pushing myself, and I hope other men listening to this will do the same, to read more books by women with female leads. It builds empathy, gives understanding, and fantastic female authors who write great stories do not deserve to be written off as unimportant or uninspiring to a male readership. Speaking of fantastic female authors, today we are focusing on Min Jin Lee's Pachinko. I realize that this book may not be as well read as the Harry Potter series or The Lord of the Rings, but I would say that this book is probably in my top 10 best books I've ever read, and I really encourage anyone to read it. Pachinko follows a Korean family from 1910 to about 1990. Anyone familiar with Korean history, and I can assure you I was not when I started this book, knows that these are very turbulent periods during the country's history. We are going to be comparing one of the main characters of this book, Sunya, and the situation involving the birth of her first child to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she learns she will give birth to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. These two mothers make a fascinating comparison and I really think we can see Mary through an entirely different lens when we look at her story alongside Sunya's. I want to warn everyone that this week's episode does discuss some more mature themes involving intimate relationships and sexual violence. I have done my best to make sure that these references are kept to a minimum and are in no way graphic, but if you have any younger listeners, then you may want to screen the show before letting them listen in. It is also time for the obligatory warning of the week. I am going to be doing my absolute best to keep the later details of what happens in Pachinko out of today's episode, because I hope everyone who hasn't picked up the book will. That being said, I may discuss some things that will happen later in that epic drama, so if you want to avoid spoilers, then I recommend stopping here, because if you go any further, then I promise you are going to get hooked and end up reading Pachinko as quickly as your eyes will let you. Now, with the warning out of the way, let's head over to Nazareth and Busan, Any conversation about the history and meaning of the Virgin Mary is going to be difficult. Mary has represented many different things to many different cultures throughout the 2,000 years of Christianity, and her importance in the early church and the Christian faith in general has been one of the main contributors to church schisms, including the Reformation. Her status as the mother of Jesus Christ has long fascinated Christians, and she has been a central figure in Christian art, literature, and apocryphal histories. It's why one sentence in one of the source books I used for this episode really stood out to me. quote, "Traditions about Mary, the mother of Jesus ultimately become so central in Christianity that many readers may be surprised to see how few of these are found in the New Testament itself End quote." Today we are focusing on Jesus' birth story from the perspective of Mary. I mentioned this in our very first episode, but only two of the four Gospels even mention the birth of Christ, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Matthew does not focus on Mary in its telling of the birth, but rather we experience the story through the lens of her fiancé, Joseph. The likely answer for why Matthew focuses on Joseph and not Mary is that the intended audience of Matthew's book is a group of Jewish Christians familiar with the Jewish scriptures, and Matthew chooses to make comparisons between the Joseph we have in the Nativity story and the Joseph of the Old Testament. The Gospel of Luke is nearly the complete opposite. The story is heavily seen through Mary's actions and dialogue, and we barely have mention of her fiancé. Since we are focusing on Mary today, then our text will come from the Gospel of Luke. I've given some background on the Gospel of Luke in previous episodes, but there are a few notes I want to make here before reading the story. The Gospel of Luke was written about 50 years after Jesus lived, and the author is believed to be a physician named Luke, who traveled the Mediterranean world with the New Testament author Paul. Luke's story is specifically addressed to a man named Theophilus, and the audience appears to be Gentile or non-Jewish Christian converts. Luke is one of the most beautifully written gospels, and his writing of Jesus' birth brilliantly places allusions to Jewish scriptures inside of a traditional Roman-era birth story of a divine man. I invite you when I read the story to think about which parts seem to fit the Old Testament stories and which parts seem to fit stories closer to Greek mythology, stories like the births of Zeus and Hercules. Luke is also attempting to give an early history of the Christian church, and this gospel is the first part of that history, followed by the book of Acts. While he is trying to give an overview of the church, the way history was written at the time left Luke a lot of room to embellish or change stories to fit his narrative, and we probably shouldn't think that Luke intended for his gospel to be taken literally line by line. The last thing I will mention is that a debate is currently raging in many biblical studies departments about why the Gospel of Luke often focuses on women. Some scholars believe this to be a reflection of the unnaturally egalitarian aspect of an early Christianity that particularly appealed to wealthy widows of the Roman world. And others see Luke's inclusion of women, who are typically described in conventionally feminine settings, as a way of gently correcting a church that is allowing women perhaps a bit too much freedom, in his mind. I personally am unsure which reason I think best describes Luke's intentions for including female characters in his gospel, but I will read some passages from Luke's chapter 1 and 2, and I encourage you to reach out to me on Twitter or Anchor about what you think. Now, for a little bit about Mary before we read the story. Mary was likely a young woman of around 12 to 13 in today's story. Although she is young, Mary is still likely a very strong woman, who would perform about ten hours' worth of very labor-intensive chores, as most women did in that time and place. She comes from the town of Nazareth, which was not very remarkable in the ancient world, and neither gospel gives us information about Mary's family prior to her marriage. Her fiancé is likely to be over the age of 20 and likely closer to 30, and her betrothal to Joseph was likely arranged by her family. We can't be sure of what her social class would have been, but the Gospel of Luke is almost certainly painting her to be a peasant woman of very little means. Lastly, she lived in a culture of rigid sexual norms and expectations. In Mary's pregnancy, regardless of whether you believe the traditional Christian belief that she was a virgin at the time Jesus was conceived, is a potentially dangerous and deadly place for a young Jewish woman to find herself. I think that is all the background you need, so let's jump into the story today found in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And just as a quick note, I will omit some verses for time. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted her cousin Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. I'm skipping forward a little here for the sake of time, but we pick up in Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. This effectively ends the birth story of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. These simple verses have gone on to inspire countless thoughts about Mary. Mary has at times been seen as the first Christian preacher, an icon of female rights, the ideal mother and quiet housewife, a sexual object by some medieval priest, an obedient follower of God, and for many, a liar about how she became impregnated. In many ways, the lack of substantive information we have about the personality of Mary, and not simply the roles that she fills, has allowed people to use Mary as an example of whatever they want women to be. This is a double-edged sword, though, because it allows us as readers to see Mary as all the possible things that women can be, but, like too many women in history, the information we have about her is scarce and minimizes the very real person she was. Our other story today is a phenomenal history of a Korean family during the 20th century. Pachinko by Min Jin Lee was a National Book Award finalist in 2017 and was listed as one of the 10 best books of 2017 by the New York Times. The book opens with a man described as having, quote, a cleft palate and a twisted foot, but hefty shoulders, a squat build, and a golden complexion, end quote. His name was Huni, and he runs a boarding house with his aging parents in the small fishing village of Yangdo. The year is 1910, and Japan's annexation of Korea is taking a toll on the Korean families in the small town. But Huni and his family are faring well due to smart financial investments and hard work. The following year, The matchmaker in the small village visits Huni's mother, and Huni soon weds a small but strong 15-year-old named Yang Jin. Yang Jin gives birth to three children who do not survive, but her fourth child is a healthy girl named Sunya. Huni is a kind and loving father, but his death when Sunya is 13 leaves the girl and her mother to run the boarding house by themselves. Part of Sunya's new responsibilities following the death of her father is to shop in the neighboring town's vast seaside market for the boarding house's needs. The market is where she first sees the attractive but considerably older fish broker, Ko Hansu, who travels back and forth from Korea and Japan. Hansu has a reputation for being a smart, if cunning, broker, but when Hansu rescues Sunya from a potentially violent altercation with some Japanese boys, the reader is given clues that Hansu is apparently more than just a simple broker. After Hansu's heroic rescue, he forms a plan to meet Sunya at a cove by the ocean while she is washing clothes for the boarding house. Hansu astounds Sunya with his extravagant wealth and stories of places far from Yangdo, and the two begin to meet regularly and develop a more intimate relationship. Eventually, Sunya discovers she is pregnant with Hansu's baby, and she expects him to offer marriage and a life together when she tells him the news. Instead, Sunya is shocked to learn that Hansu is already married with three kids in Japan, and he has no plans to make her a wife. He does offer to buy her boarding house and grant her a luxurious lifestyle if she will remain his mistress. But she rejects this offer because, quote, She felt certain her mother and father would have preferred her to have any honest job than to be a rich man's mistress, end quote. Sunya is now a pregnant 17-year-old caught in a shameful situation that may lead her to be a social pariah. During Sunya and Hansu's affair, a young minister named Baik Isaac has been staying at the boarding house. Isaac is a Protestant from the northern part of Korea, headed to a church in Osaka, Japan. But he falls ill when he stops at Yongdo on the way. Isaac, like Han Su, is wealthy, but his Christian background manifests in a childlike kindness to those around him. Isaac is alert enough to pick up that something has occurred between Sunya and Jin, and the mother confides in him that Sunya has fallen pregnant. Isaac, grateful for the care and treatment for his illness he has received at the boarding house, makes the decision to ask Sunya to marry him and follow him to Osaka. For Sunya, this is a solution to the problem of her pregnancy, and she accepts the offer in a very moving scene. Quote, I'll love this child, and I will love and honor you," says Isaac. "I'll do my best to be a good wife," says Sunya. "Thank you," he said. He had hoped he and Sunya would be close, the way his parents were. End quote. The couple is married quickly, and then head out for Osaka to their new life. Before they leave, young Jin gives Sunya her most valuable possessions—two golden rings—and the seventeen-year-old pregnant mother says goodbye to her own mother before following her new husband onto a boat to a new land. Upon arriving in Japan, Sunya gives birth to a son named Noah, who is healthy. That is where I am going to stop in Sunya's story, because I don't want to ruin the story for anyone who has never read the book. I hope this has given you a small taste of how beautiful the writing in Pachinko is, and the characters really do feel alive. There are a few things I wanted to point out, because Pachinko, like the Bible, gives the reader context clues about the cultural and historical happenings in the story, but does not explain in detail what is going on in the background. In the 1880s, Japan begins to set its sights on expansion in Asia. Korea, which shares the Korean peninsula with Japan, is one of the earliest spots chosen for Japanese advancement, and the Japanese wrestle control of the country away from China. Relations between the Korean and Japanese people in this time were tense, and Pachinko itself shows many instances of Japanese individuals discriminating against individuals with a Korean background. This colonial era in Korea is marked by a dispossession of land held by illiterate Korean farmers and increasingly difficult economic situations for the Korean people. This is why Huni's family begins a boarding house, and Pachinko is filled with examples of the strength and resiliency of Korean families to overcome these difficulties. The last thing I will mention is that Isaac's presence as a Protestant minister would not have been all that uncommon for the time. Missionaries have visited East Asia since the 1500s, and Protestants actually began to have a foothold in Korea following Japan's invasion. China had previously restricted Protestant movements in Korea, but people like Isaac would have become more prominent during Korea's colonization. Ironically, many Protestant Koreans were members of the elite families of Korea and would lead the early independence movement away from Japan. Okay, I know that was a lot of background, but I think it's necessary for our discussion today. If I left anything out that you feel is important in either story, then I am really sorry, but I am trying to cover a lot of ground here. With that said, it is finally time to take a closer look at these two amazing women. Let's dive into Nazareth and Yang Do. It is unfortunate that the history of biblical teaching and scripture interpretation has often been limited to male-only perspectives. While the early Christian church may have had prominent female leaders, men have historically been the loudest voices in the room. This type of one-sided representation can cause us to miss important moments when we analyze biblical stories, and I think one of the most remarkable things that many overlook is the social stigma that likely surrounded Mary's pregnancy. The Gospel of Luke states an angel appeared to Mary and told her that she would give birth to a son named Jesus. It can be easy to take for granted how difficult this news might be for Mary in our rush to Jesus' birth. It's important to take time to think through what happened to unmarried women who became pregnant outside of marriage in Galilee at that time. A BBC article on Mary's story puts it this way A girl who became pregnant out of wedlock would have been terrified. The whole social structure was set up for children to be born within marriage. Genealogy and ownership of children was seen as very important. Girls who became pregnant outside of marriage would probably have had to leave their homes and their families. There was the potential of being sold into slavery or of being stoned to death. She may have been married off quickly or banished from her home or village, which may have led women to prostitution or slavery when she had no way of supporting herself. While the author of Luke writes Mary demurely answering that she will submit to the will of God, I think there are a few hints that Mary is worried about the reaction to her pregnancy. The first hint is that she asked the angel how she can be pregnant when she is a virgin. Of course, this would be the logical question asked by anyone told they were going to give birth without the only known means of becoming pregnant, but I also think it reveals Mary's headspace at the time. She is rightly concerned how her pregnancy will occur and how she will explain it to others. Remember that the author of Luke is trying to fit his knowledge of Jesus' conception into the traditional mythology stories of the Greco-Roman world and Luke quite carefully sidesteps the issue of Mary having a physical relationship with God by stating that the Holy Spirit will overcome Mary and cause her to conceive a child. This carefully authenticates Jesus' status as the Son of God, but it lacks the sexual exploitation or violence seen in Greek and Roman mythology stories about their gods. Luke even acknowledges that Mary consents to this conception, and Christians have traditionally interpreted this to mean that Mary had a decision to not carry Jesus if she wanted to. This entire scene is a careful reworking of the traditional Greco-Roman story into an example of Mary's faithfulness to God despite worries about how a pregnancy will be received in her community. The second hint we have that Mary's pregnancy is a socially troubling issue is her immediate departure to visit her cousin Elizabeth. I think this scene reveals that Mary is leaving her small town of about a thousand people to a place where she is less known to potentially avoid questions about her pregnancy. I don't think it is out of place to wonder whether the pregnant Mary may be visiting her childless cousin to see if Elizabeth would adopt her child. This is very reminiscent of scenes where a mother and daughter take a trip for a year, and the mother returns with a newborn baby. Mary may see Elizabeth, who believes she will never have children in her advanced age, as a potential solution to her unwed pregnancy. If Elizabeth will take the child, then it may be possible for Mary to maintain her social standing and betrothal to Joseph. It is also possible that Mary is simply seeking a place to stay away from the eyes of Nazareth, but whatever your interpretation, I think this scene is a hint at the uncomfortability that Mary feels. While we have to piece together the societal implication of Mary's pregnancy, the story told in Pachinko leaves us with little doubt about the stigma that will surround Sunya's pregnancy. Sunya's mother, Young Jin, explains the issue. Quote, I don't know what will happen to her. Her life is ruined. It would have been difficult for her to marry before. It's a difficult thing to be an unmarried woman, but to bear a child without a husband. The neighbors will never approve. And what will happen to this baby who has no name? He cannot be registered under our family name. End quote. Later, Young Jin frequently tells Sunya's new fiancé, Isaac, that the man is saving Sunya's life by marrying her and taking her away from Young Do. It's clear that Sunya is facing the same societal dilemma as Mary with her pregnancy, a life of social isolation and a potentially dangerous situation if she is asked to leave the village. Like Mary, Sunya's decision to leave Young Do is primarily due to the real social dangers if others discover her pregnancy. One major difference between Sunya and Mary in these scenes, however, is the support of Sunya's family. The novel hints that Sunya's pregnancy has caused a rift in the family, but it is also clear that Young Jin loves her daughter and will help her in any way possible. We don't receive any mention of Mary's immediate family. It is true that Mary visits her cousin, but we have no idea how Mary's family reacted to her story about being pregnant with God's son. I have one more interesting note about the families of these two women. Both Elizabeth and Yongjin serve as a foil, in a sense, for Mary and Sunya. The author of Luke tells us that Elizabeth has no children, and she is no longer expecting children because of her age and infertility. Unfortunately, Elizabeth's infertility would have been seen as a sign of divine punishment for sin. One source listed the consequences of infertility this way Quote, Socially, failure to bear children had grave consequences for women. Disfavor with the husband and his family, possible occasion for divorce, embarrassment to the woman's father, contempt, shame, humiliation, and on the barren woman's part, envy. That is not exactly a short list. But we can see Elizabeth is also in a socially awkward position for the opposite reason of Mary. Despite following the sexual rules and norms of her society, Elizabeth has been unable to fulfill the primary role of child-giver to her community. Sunya's mother Yang Jin goes through similar circumstances early in Pachinko. In three brief but poignant paragraphs in the first chapter that hit the reader with the same type of pain as the first five minutes of the movie up, we learn that Yang Jin has lost her first three children to disease before they are even a year old. When Yang Jin's in-laws die, the author gives insight about what is expected for women in this society through Yang Jin's reflection on their death. Quote, No one had hit her or criticized her even as she failed to give them a surviving heir. End quote. While Yongjin does not suffer from infertility like Elizabeth, the devastating deaths of her children have a similar effect. She is unable to fulfill her most important duty to her society by producing healthy children. Like Elizabeth, Yang Jin keeps the sexual norms and rules of her society, but still faces societal backlash for something outside of her control. What these stories really reveal is the impossibly high standards placed on women to produce children at the proper time in their respective societies. These types of sexual purity standards placed on young women and the child-rearing expectations placed on older women have been pervasive throughout most societies. Mary and Sunya face an equal backlash for failing to remain quote-unquote pure for a husband who is likely not held to the same standards. Elizabeth and Young Jin face consequences for something outside of their control completely despite the fact that it's entirely possible that their husbands were behind the couple's inability to produce healthy children. We can't be sure if the author of Luke is really trying to bring these problems to the forefront. My guess is no. But Min Jin Lee is absolutely using these stories to show the unimaginable standards placed on Korean women at this time. The ever-present lack of control and autonomy for women lurks in the background of both stories, and I think it is important to talk about this if you are going to fully understand them. I also think Sunya is a great comparison for Mary because it allows us to see the consequences of her faithfulness to God and his extremely high demand on her. By comparing her with Sunya, we are given a chance to see Mary as more than just the mother of Christ. She is a young, strong, but vulnerable woman whose humanity deserves to be respected when we examine her story. One of the major themes of both the Gospel of Luke and Pachinko is how to make difficult decisions. An example in Luke can be found in last week's story. Should the first disciples follow Jesus on his mission or stay in their fishing boats? Pachinko is absolutely littered with tough choices for the main characters, and I highlighted a major one in our introduction when Isaac makes the decision to marry Sunya and raise another man's child. And I think that theme can be seen when our two mothers face a tough decision about how to respond to their pregnancies that will essentially define their futures. We have briefly touched on this earlier, but Christians have traditionally interpreted Mary's discussion with the angel Gabriel as a question rather than a command. When Gabriel informs Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary to conceive Jesus, Mary's response is, quote, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. End quote. This has traditionally been seen as Mary's consent to bearing the child. But if we view this as an answer by Mary that she will carry the child, Then we can assume that it is entirely possible that Mary could have answered no. I certainly think it would have been difficult to tell an angel no to God's plan, but I think we can entertain the idea that Mary could have rejected God's request for her to be Jesus' mother. While some may see this as silly, I think the discussion in our previous section highlights how a rejection of God's offer isn't necessarily a bad idea. Mary must face societal backlash and possibly death if she is unable to convince others that the baby comes from God. If Mary says no, then she can continue in a quiet life where she will marry her fiancé Joseph and raise a family. Her life may be uneventful, but there are quite a few people who prefer uneventful, honestly. And Mary's choice doesn't simply end with the birth of Jesus. She is there as Jesus begins his ministry, watches his rejection in his own hometown, must be aware of the trouble he is causing in Jerusalem, and the Gospel of John tells us she is there to witness Jesus' crucifixion. These aren't easy things to do. Think any empathetic person could understand if she reflects on this decision she has made quite frequently. But I think the beautiful thing is to see how Mary's decision to be obedient to the God she loves is rewarded in many ways. She witnesses her son grow a massive following, be invited to dine and converse with the elite of the Palestinian world, and Christian tradition has held her to have a prominent role in increasing the early religion founded by her own son. And Mary has become an inspirational figure for countless women. In a world that often minimizes the importance of women just like her, it's a tough choice, but I think it's easy in hindsight to believe that she made the right one. Meanwhile, Sunya faces a difficult decision of her own. After realizing she is pregnant, Sunya is excited to inform her lover, Ko Hansu, that she is pregnant with his child. However, Hansu has a surprise of his own when he reveals that he already has a wife and three children in Japan. Hansu then offers to make Sunya his Korean mistress. He tells Sunya that he is planning to buy a big house for Sunya, where he can come when he is doing business there. Quote, I will buy that boarding house for you, and your mother and you won't have to keep lodgers anymore. You could just take care of the child. We could have more children. You could get a much bigger house if you like. End quote. It's a very tempting offer for a mother and daughter living six to a room in the midst of the Great Depression in Korea. But Sunya rejects this offer immediately. Quote, Her mother's boarding house would be contaminated by her shame. There was a baby inside her belly, and this child would not have a real father like the one she'd had, end quote. Sunya decides that she would rather suffer the shame of being a single mother than the shame of being a kept mistress for a man who would come and go. And as the book progresses, I think the reader is forced to wonder whether Sunya's decision here is the right choice. Is her decision to keep dignity a better decision than to seek financial safety? I think these decisions represent the choice between dignity and comfort. For Mary... A decision to reject her god would be a lifelong personal shame. While she may have the comfort of an ordinary life, she must deal with the inner turmoil that would come from constantly wondering about what-ifs. For Sunya, a decision to be a kept mistress by Hansu represents a lifelong admittance of her shame. She will have all the comforts his money can provide, but she will live in a village that views her as immoral. And she must subject her mother to the same treatment. She chooses to keep a life of dignity, and she is rewarded for that decision when Isaac marries her. Both women choose dignity, and both women see the fruits of choosing a life where they respect themselves. The real difference here is that Sunya's pregnancy is unavoidable in her story. She faces societal challenges no matter what decision she makes, but she makes the more difficult decision to live out her shame publicly and proudly alone. Mary could reject her pregnancy and seemingly go back to a normal life. Her decision in many ways may be a little bit more difficult because she must decide whether to face the shame in her culture of unwedded pregnancy at all. However, I think both women reveal real strength in their choices, and I like to think they are rewarded with faithful men who support them. Isaac gives Sonya a new lease on life, and I think Joseph must believe Mary at some level to keep their engagement. It would be nice to see these women maintain an autonomy where the greatest prize they can have is more than just faithful men, but unfortunately, this is probably the greatest prize they can have. These men help the mothers lead somewhat normal lives. That being said, The choices these women make reveal their strength amidst difficult times. I think we can learn a lot from both of these characters about the importance of respecting yourself and the rewards that come from a life of keeping dignity over safety. Our final point for the day is going to be a short but important one, I think. Really, the final act in our two scenes today is when Mary and Sunya give birth. One of the reasons this is a logical ending point is the way the narration of these stories treat the mothers after the births of their children. I want to take a quick look at how these stories change after Jesus and Noah are born. For Mary, the scenes leading up to her birth are the final time she will be the main character in Luke's narrative. After the birth of Christ, Mary will make infrequent appearances in the gospel. She is barely mentioned, and she certainly doesn't give any more of the poetic language we see in her conversation with the archangel Gabriel. I think this is completely understandable for a text that is focused on the teachings and history of Jesus of Nazareth, but it's an interesting note nonetheless. Mary is given such a prominent role in the beginning of Luke's telling of the history of the church that the reader almost expects her to maintain a strong role in Jesus' life. But we really don't learn much more about Mary, other than that she likely moved to Capernaum with Jesus and is present at some of his miracles. In Pachinko, nearly the entirety of the first third of the book, essentially what we have discussed today is viewed primarily through the eyes of Sunya. We do occasionally hear perspectives from Yang Jin, Hansu, and Isaac, but Sunya's thoughts and actions are the primary drivers of the narrative. I don't want to reveal any of the plot that happens later in the book, because I want everyone to go read it, but an interesting thing happens after Sunya gives birth to Noah. The book skips some years ahead, and the voices we hear in the story become broader. The story is told through the lens of many more characters, including Noah, And while Sunya remains arguably the most important character, we begin to see her actions interpreted through the thoughts of other characters. Like Mary, Sunya's children are soon the dominant force of the book. We still see Sunya struggle and can easily empathize and relate to her, but her choices and the direction of her life are essentially about her children. I think the shift in view for the narrative makes total sense in both books. The Gospel of Luke is telling the story of Christ, not Mary. And Pachinko is a book focused on the entirety of Sunya's family, so it makes sense that as her family grows, we hear more and more voices. But I think this shift can also represent what has often been the case in the way we tell stories. Women are often only granted the lead role before the birth of their children. I think it's important to notice as a reader how natural it feels to shift away from the mother's point of view to her child's. Many stories use mothers as a framing device to tell the story of men. Certainly, the author of Luke is using Mary as a way to reveal Jesus' humble origins and faithful parents. I think Min Jin Lee is skillfully using her book to illustrate the strength of a matriarch to sacrifice herself for her family's well-being. She is, in a way, asking us to recognize the importance of mothers in our lives and the unique and sometimes harmful ways that women are asked to bear the emotional and physical burdens of raising children. The obvious difference here is that Sunya's children are not founders of a religious movement. Sunya also continues to be a very important character in the novel of Pachinko, and we see her grow into old age. Most of the research I've done makes it seem that the earliest Christians weren't all that interested in Mary's story, and people didn't really write about Mary's involvement in the early church until about a century after Jesus' death. This is presumably when eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life were no longer living so it could be the rise in writings about Mary coincides with a larger curiosity about a religious leader that no living person had ever known at the time. But sadly, we can't ever really know much more about Mary at this point. Min Jin Lee has given an interview where she makes a poignant remark that I think speaks to the lack of information about Mary and why her character has been interpreted to mean so many different things. Quote, Interestingly, women have become at best the minor characters in history, although we represent half the human race, because we have left so few primary documents in nearly all cultures and civilizations, end quote. What I love about Pachinko, and the real reason I chose to compare Sunya to Mary, the mother of Jesus, is that Min Jin Lee brilliantly gives us insight into women like Mary and Sunya. She states, quote, From 2007 to 2011, I interviewed many Korean Japanese men and women, and a great many of them mentioned a first-generation matriarch who sacrificed much of her life for the next generation, which ultimately led me to Sunya and her world, end quote. I think this statement can also apply to Mary. It's clear that she sacrificed her body, her reputation, her potential marriage, and her future to give birth to Jesus. Mary and Sunya represent the type of strong matriarchs whose voices are all too often left out of our history. And my hope is by doing something even as small as this podcast that we can take the time to appreciate these women for who they are as much as who their sons have grown to be. That is all we have for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to the stories of Mary and Sunya as much as I enjoyed researching and writing it. I absolutely could not have written today's episodes without some great sources, so if you are interested in learning where you can hear more about Mary or Sunya, then please stick around after this conclusion for my sources. Next episode, we will continue our focus on female characters by looking at Francie Nolan from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. We will be comparing her discovery of a wonderful Brooklyn library and the story of Jesus staying in the temple in Jerusalem from the Gospel of Luke chapter two. I am really excited to continue to examine female characters and hopefully earn some new perspectives on how we can better understand biblical narratives. I previously was trying to release a new episode every week on Monday, but the last few episodes have required really quite a lot of research. My new plan is to release a new episode every two weeks on Wednesday. If you have thoughts about this, whether you hate it or you love it, let me know on Twitter or Anchor. I think this will allow me, though, to continue to give you the best content with a solid schedule. I want to thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed this little podcast, then please share us with others that are lovers of books, biblical comparisons, or anything in between. We are just starting out, so we need all the help we can to get the word out. Also, please check out our website at anchor.fm slash booknerdinthebible or find us on Twitter at booknerd underscore bible. You can find the next episode of A Book Nerd in the Bible on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Good Pods. Thanks again, and may the book nerd in you be blessed until we meet again. This week would have been impossible to write without some strong sources. I really hope you will check out some of these great pieces to learn more about the women we looked at today. For more about Pachinko, check out Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, published by Grand Central Publishing. Reading Group Guide, Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, on Grand Central Publishing's main website. And Contextualizing Min Jin Lee's Pachinko, by Todd Munson on the Association for Asian Studies website. For more about Mary, the mother of Jesus, please read Gospel Women, Studies of the Named Women in the Gospels by Richard Bauckham. Specifically, Chapter 3, Elizabeth and Mary in Luke 1, reading a gynocentric text intertextually. Prostitutes, Virgins, and Mothers, Questioning Teachings About Biblical Women by Dr. Paula Trimble-Familetti. The Mary 1 Entry in Women in Scripture, a Dictionary of Named and Unnamed Women in the Hebrew Bible, the Apocryphal Deuterocanonical Books and the New Testament edited by Carol Myers. Chapter 4, Theological Motherhood from The Oldest Vocation, Christian Motherhood in the Medieval West by Clarissa W. Adkinson. Narrative Logic in the Annunciation to Mary, Luke 1, 26-38, by David T. Landry in the Journal of Biblical Literature. The Social Status of Mary in Luke 1 5-252. A Plea for Methodological Integration by Joel B. Green in Biblica. Women in Luke Acts, a redactional view by Mary Rose D'Angelo in the Journal of Biblical Literature. The Virgin Mary in the Ministry of Jesus and the Early Church, According to the Earliest Life of the Virgin, by Stephen J. Shoemaker, in the Harvard Theological Review. And, from the BBC Religions section, an article titled Mary with Six Different Academic Experts Pitching in to Writer Background. And lastly, for more information about female authors and the levels of male readership, check out Why Do So Few Men Read Books by Women by M.A. Seekhart on TheGuardian.com. I encourage you to check out any of these sources and to read Pachinko. Always feel free to reach out to me with any questions on Twitter or Anchor about any of the sources I used today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you will join us again next time.